murder, conspiracy, intrigue, arranged marriages, assassinations, defenestration, inheritance crisis, you name it, we've got it. It's the life of Joanna of Naples, today on Footnoting History. Hello, 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 and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. So today's podcast is very exciting for me. Uh, not only do I get to indulge in my love of conspiracy theories, but I also get to talk about the Angevins. Now, some of you who are English history buffs probably think at this point that I'm talking about the English Angevins, also known as the Plantagenets, uh, Henry II, Richard the Lionheart, and that line. But no, these are the Italian Angevins, who are in fact French. Confused yet? Oh, we haven't even gotten started. So today I want to talk about the tragic, convoluted, complicated story of Joanna of Naples, who lived in the 14th century. Personally, I'm kind of shocked that her life hasn't been turned into a TV show yet, uh, though I'll just go ahead and put it out there that I am totally available for historical consultancy work if anyone has something in the pipeline. Uh, however, in order for some of the later parts of this story to make sense, particularly the bits about inheritance issues, we have to back up a little bit to the 13th century to talk about Joanna's great-great-grandfather, Charles of Anjou. Incidentally, uh, since a lot of the story involves complicated relationships between people who often have the same name and are all related to one another, uh, I've put up a family tree on our website, footnotinghistory.com, so that you can follow along at home in case you get lost. So, Charles of Anjou. Charles was born in 1226, and he was the youngest son of the King of France. His father died about six months after he was born. With several older brothers, the most that Charles could really look forward to when he was growing up was a good marriage and maybe becoming a count. Uh, his oldest brother, Louis, was the star of the family, and the one who is most remembered by history, because he went on crusade, uh, Charles went with him, and he was very pious, so that after he died, uh, he was canonized, he was made a saint, uh, Saint-Louis, for whom, of course, uh, St. Louis, Missouri is named. Therefore, it was maybe a little unusual that uh, when he was 20 years old, in 1246, Charles won a kind of marriage bidding war that was being negotiated by the Pope for the hand of Beatrice of Provence. It was kind of like a medieval version of the Bachelorette, with the Pope acting as host. In case you don't know where it's at, Provence is sort of the southeastern corner of what is today France. But in the Middle Ages, Provence wasn't part of France. It was nominally part of the Holy Roman Empire, but it sort of tended to do its own thing. Beatrice's father was the Count of Provence, and when he died, he left the county to Beatrice because he had no male heirs, and her sisters were already married off very, very well. Uh, Beatrice had three older sisters. Margaret, the eldest, had married Charles's older brother Louis and was therefore Queen of France. Her sister, Eleanor, was the Queen of England. And the third, Sancha, was the wife of the Duke of Cornwall. Beatrice, however, was 15 when her father died and was not yet wed, so she gets Provence. When he married Beatrice in 1246, Charles became the Count of Provence. The next year, his brother Louis gives him the counties of Anjou and Maine, which are in um, central western France. And it's from these counties that the dynasty takes its name, though they don't really hold on to them for all that long, only about 50 years, and they never actually live there. 
Then, 20 years later, in the 1260s, Charles is basically invited by the Pope to invade southern Italy and take the crown of the Kingdom of Sicily. Now, the Kingdom of Sicily wasn't just the island of Sicily. It also encompassed the entire southern end of the Italian peninsula, basically everything south of Rome, as well as some territories directly across the Adriatic in what is modern-day Albania. At the time, southern Italy was being contested between certain members of the German Hohenstaufen family, with whom the papacy had certain, well, let's call them long-standing conflicts. Long story short, uh, Charles invades, kicks out the Germans, and the Pope crowns him King of Sicily. So within 20 years, Charles has gone from being the youngest son of the King of France to King of Sicily, Count of Provence, Anjou, and Maine. And not too shabby. Well, fast forward another 20 years to 1282. At this point, the cities of Sicily rebel against Charles, and because Sicily is backed in this effort by the Kingdom of Aragon in a very sly maneuver that itself kind of reeks of conspiracy, the island is lost to the Angevins. They will spend decades trying to get it back. So, at this point, historians start referring to the Angevin holdings as the Kingdom of Naples, which is why sometimes you'll see Charles and his descendants being described as of Anjou, and sometimes they're called of Naples. So, Charles is sometimes Charles of Anjou, and sometimes he's Charles of Naples. It gets very confusing, because both terms are technically correct, and the Angevins didn't use either. They continue to call themselves Kings of Sicily. Well, three years after the Sicilian Rebellion, in 1285, Charles dies, and rule of the counties and the kingdom of Naples passes to his son, Charles II. Now, Charles II and his wife, Marie, who is the daughter of the king of Hungary, together they have 14 children. Right now, I'm just going to talk about the three eldest sons, but some of the younger ones will be important later on. His eldest son was, creatively, named Charles. His full name, though, was Charles Martel, and when he's 18, the Pope tries to make him King of Hungary, a claim that he has through his mother. Charles Martel, though, doesn't live very long. He dies at the age of 23 in 1295, and he never actually makes it to Hungary. But his son, Carobert, which, by the way, is short for Charles Robert, Carobert does, and actually becomes King of Hungary, starting a branch of the Angevins in Hungary. We'll return to this branch of the family in a second, so keep it on the back burner. Well, when Charles Martel dies in 1295, the next person in line for the throne is the next eldest son, Louis. The thing is that Louis is very pious, like his great-uncle and namesake, Saint-Louis, and this Louis just really wants to be a Franciscan. He actually becomes a Franciscan in secret, much to the displeasure of his father, who gets the Pope to make him Bishop of Toulouse. But Louis doesn't live very long after this, and he also dies at the age of 23 in 1297, two years after his older brother. He's also eventually canonized, and if you're from Southern California, there's a town on the coast between L.A. and San Francisco named San Luis Obispo. That's this St. Louis. So the first brother has died, the second brother has sort of abdicated his claim and dies, so this means that the heir to the throne is now the third son, Robert. He actually becomes king of Naples when his dad dies in 1309. Things go pretty well for Robert, but he only has one child that survives till adulthood, a son named, well, Charles. This Charles, Charles of Calabria, will only have two daughters that themselves survive to adulthood, 
Joanna, born in 1326 and the subject of today's podcast, and her little sister Marie, born in 1329. But as seems to be the case with this family, Charles of Calabria dies young, in 1328 at the age of 30, while his wife is pregnant with Marie. After he dies, the girls go to Naples to be raised by their grandfather and step-grandmother. So to quickly recap where we are in your mental family tree, we have two branches of the Angevins, the ones in Hungary, Carlbert, the son of Charles Martel, and the ones in Naples, Robert and his two young granddaughters, Joanna and Marie. The thing is that the Hungarian Angevin, Carlbert, believes that he should have inherited the kingdom of Naples instead of Robert, because the line is supposed to proceed through the eldest son, not to the next brother. At least, that's what he thinks. Robert, naturally, doesn't want to give up his claim, and after much conflict, they theoretically arrive at a compromise. Carolbert has two sons, Louis and Andrew. Robert has two granddaughters, Joanna and Marie. Thus, the obvious answer is marriage. Joanna is betrothed to Andrew, and he's sent to Naples to be raised there. Uh, Marie and Louis are also supposed to be betrothed, but that marriage never happens. Uh, Louis winds up marrying someone else, and when Marie is 14, she's kidnapped by her great-aunt and maybe forced, maybe not, into marrying her cousin. Uh, more on that later. But Joanna and Andrew are betrothed. A couple of things to point out here. First of all, Joanna and Andrew are second cousins. Now, this wasn't uncommon in medieval noble arranged marriage, but the relationship was still close enough that they had to receive a papal dispensation, special permission, in order to be allowed to marry. The other thing is that when this betrothal happens, Joanna is about seven years old, and Andrew is like five or six when he gets shipped off to Naples, so they grow up together, knowing that they're going to get married and having very little choice in the matter. The other thing is that while he has agreed to marry off his granddaughter, and he apparently readily and warmly accepts Andrew into his court, Robert doesn't want to cede control of the Kingdom of Naples to the Hungarian Angevins. Everything is going pretty well until 1343, when Robert dies. At this point, Joanna is 17 and Andrew is 15. And in his last will and testament, Robert causes a lot of problems for Joanna. First of all, according to the terms of the will, Joanna gets everything. Provence, Naples, the works. Andrew isn't named as any kind of heir because both Joanna and Robert are afraid that uh, when they're crowned, the fact that Andrew will be crowned king will trump Joanna as queen and basically they'll lose control of the kingdom of Naples. So according to the will, Joanna gets everything, Andrew gets nothing. However, Robert also throws a wrench into the works, because even though she's supposed to come into her inheritance the following year, when she turns 18, Robert tries to put that off, and he says that she can't have her inheritance, i.e. the Kingdom of Naples, until she turns 25. And until then, a hand-picked governing council is supposed to rule for her, headed by her step-grandmother. Well, Joanna is not at all happy about this, and basically pleads to the Pope for a while until he grants her permission to override the will and be crowned Queen of Naples. Joanna has uncontested power once her step-grandmother, who headed that council that was supposed to rule for her, when she dies in 1345. Andrew isn't crowned, he's merely her consort, uh, much like how the modern-day Prince Philip is consort to Queen Elizabeth of England. This creates a lot of tensions, both within the court of Naples and with Hungary, because a lot of people were expecting that Andrew would be named heir and crowned king. 
The Hungarian Angevins are extremely upset and start nagging at the Pope to allow Andrew to be crowned king. The Pope agrees and sends a representative to perform the coronation. Before the representative gets there, though, all this comes to a head in September of 1345. Joanna, at this point, is pregnant with Andrew's child, and she and her husband decide to go hunting just north of Naples at a place called Aversa. One night, after everybody's gone to bed, Andrew is awakened by his chamberlain. He goes out into the hallway, where he's seized, beaten, strangled, and his body is thrown out the window. Joanna, who is sleeping in the next room, supposedly hears absolutely nothing, but instantly all sorts of theories as to who killed Andrew start being circulated. Naturally, the Hungarians say that it was Joanna, and she was in on the whole thing. She orchestrated it, or at least her supporters did. Eventually, an investigation is launched by two of Joanna's cousins, Robert of Toronto and Charles of Durazzo. Both of these men are sons of Charles II's younger children, so they're Joanna's first cousins once removed. Remember when I said that Joanna's little sister Marie was abducted and maybe, maybe not forced to marry her cousin? Charles of Durazzo was that cousin. In their investigation, they uncover what was supposedly a massive conspiracy involving some of the most senior members of Joanna's household. Even contemporary chroniclers were a little dubious about this investigation and suggested that perhaps these cousins, with their eye on Joanna's throne, were kind of thinning the herd of support around her. Joanna herself is found innocent of any involvement, but her reputation suffers greatly, and for the rest of her life, vicious rumors circulate about her complicity in her husband's death. While she did have some defenders, many chroniclers and writers vilified her as a husband-killing she-wolf, or were at the very least suspicious of her. And to be fair, Joanna didn't exactly help her case. Even before Andrew was killed, there were several men at court who were rumored to be her lovers, thus putting the parentage of her child by Andrew into question. One of them, Roberto de Cabani, was even supposedly part of the conspiracy to murder Andrew. Other rumored lovers included Robert of Toronto, the man who carried out the investigation into Andrew's death, as well as his brother, Louis of Toronto. Remember again that Robert and Louis are Joanna's first cousins once removed, an even closer relation than Joanna had been to Andrew. Lending credence to the rumors of their involvement is the fact that, after Andrew dies, Joanna first asks the Pope for another dispensation so that she can marry Robert, but the Pope refuses to grant this, so she then asks for a dispensation to marry his brother, Louis, but was again turned down. At this point, apparently, Joanna said, screw it, and marries Louis anyway, in August of 1347, just one month shy of two years after Andrew's murder. While there are some indications that Joanna may have actually wanted to marry Louis of Toronto, no one wanted Louis to marry Joanna, and at the news of their betrothal, Louis's brother Robert again teams up with Charles of Durazzo to oppose the marriage. Well, Louis is able to successfully put down this rebellion, only to find out that the Hungarian Angevins are preparing to invade in retaliation for both Andrew's murder and Joanna's remarriage. At this point, Joanna, who is pregnant again, now with Louis's child, leaves her son by Andrew in Naples and flees Italy, going to the Papal Palace in Avignon. Oh yeah, by this point, the seat of the papacy has been moved from Rome to Avignon. That will be important later on, but for a more extended explanation of that, you can check out our Papal Abdication podcast. So anyway, Joanna has fled to Avignon. 
Andrew's older brother, Louis of Hungary, invades the kingdom of Naples. He captures Joanna's infant son and ships him back to Hungary, where he dies at the age of two and a half, and drives out Louis of Toronto, who also flees to Avignon and is reunited with Joanna. Louis of Hungary also captures Charles of Durazzo, and quite symbolically kills him at Aversa, where Andrew was murdered. Um, there are actually conflicting medieval accounts on just how he died. Some sources say he was decapitated, others say he was stabbed, and others say he was, like Andrew, shoved out of a window. Once they are in Avignon, uh, Joanna and her husband regroup to try and figure out what to do. They appeal to the Pope, Clement VI, for aid, and essentially strike up a deal. First, the Pope retroactively dispenses their marriage, making it canonically valid. Up to this point, in the eyes of the church, they've just sort of been living together. Then, for the outrageously low sum of 80,000 florins, Joanna sells the city of Avignon, which was part of her holdings in Provence, and the area around it to the papacy. In exchange, the Pope agrees to support her claim to the throne of Naples. However, to take back their kingdom, it turns out that Louis and Joanna barely needed to lift a finger, because a little bacteria did it for them. Now, dig way back into your high school or college Western Civ classes, and remember that 1347-48 to 48 is when the first wave of the Black Death hits Europe, killing up to a third of the continent's population. By the summer of 1348, the Hungarian forces have been devastated by the plague, and they're moving out of Italy, allowing Joanna and Louis to return to Naples. Once they're back in power, Louis seems to have exercised far more control over his wife than Andrew of Hungary had, and where Andrew was king in name only, Louis is actually crowned king, and co-rules Naples and Provence with his wife. Some historians even go so far as to say that he forces Joanna to give up much of her governing power to him, and public rumor at the time suggests that Louis actually mistreated Joanna, that he physically beat her, and at one point people even said that he was trying to poison her. They do have two children together, both girls, but they die at the ages of 15 and 3 years old. Nevertheless, uh, despite some early attempts to thwart his dominance, Joanna loses the long-term power struggle with her husband. For his part, Louis of Toronto was never a popular ruler, and is often characterized as an inept administrator. He also faced constant threats and challenges to his power, from his own family members, from nobles in Provence and Naples, and from the Angevins in Hungary. The result of this was that by the time of his death in May of 1362, Joanna's return to power was welcomed with open arms. However, Joanna still needs an heir, so she needs to remarry, but it has to be someone who wouldn't have a problem with being a mere consort and allowing her to rule. Six months after Louis's death, in December of 1362, she's betrothed to James IV, the titular King of Majorca. James was 10 years her junior. When they marry, uh, he's 26, she's 36. But he was also a king in exile, because Majorca, which is an island kingdom off of the eastern coast of Spain, had been seized by the kingdom of Aragon, and James had practically grown up in prison in Barcelona until he escaped and fled to Naples. So James is a king in name only, and is more interested in getting back Majorca than ruling Naples. So he goes along with most of Joanna's demands, including not being crowned king of Naples and contenting himself with just the title of prince consort. Theirs was not, however, a very happy marriage. Joanna again becomes pregnant, but has a very bad miscarriage, and never conceives again. 
James's extended captivity had made him a little mentally unstable. Uh, from the contemporary descriptions of his behavior, it kind of sounds like he may have had some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. Eventually, he leaves Naples and tries to win back his kingdom by fighting in Spain. Eventually, he catches fever and dies in January of 1375. He and Joanna were married for 12 years. A year after James's death, Joanna married for the fourth and final time in 1376, this time to a German, Otto, the Duke of Brunswick-Gubenhagen. Because, obviously, everything in this story has to be connected in some way, Otto's previous wife was the stepmother of Joanna's third husband, James. How's that for connected? Otto was six years older than Joanna, and their marriage, because of her miscarriage, was childless. The final years of Joanna's life and reign, as well as her fourth marriage, were largely overshadowed by her involvement in the papal schism. Again, if you want a slightly more detailed explanation of what this is, I'll refer you back to the Papal Abdication podcast. But the long and the short of it is that in 1378, an attempt is made to move the seat of the papacy from Avignon back to Rome. This attempt is either successful or unsuccessful, depending on how you look at it, because we come out of it with a very complicated mess and two popes, one backed by French cardinals based in Avignon and the other backed by Italian cardinals based in Rome. All the rulers of Europe are thus forced to choose sides as to which pope is legitimate, and Joanna backs Avignon, much to the chagrin and ire of some of her own subjects, as well as half of Europe. Although it may seem unsurprising that she chose to back the Avignonese Pope, given that she had sold the town to the papacy in the first place, it was still surprising to many people because the Roman Pope, Urban VI, was actually from Itri, which is just outside of Naples, and this lack of hometown loyalty really stung for some of the Neapolitans. Now, even though I haven't talked about it for a bit, do not imagine that Joanna's remaining family members have somehow made peace with her claim to the throne of Naples. In particular, since she has no children, the question of who is going to inherit the kingdom of Naples when she dies is up for grabs. Logically, the next in line is another cousin. Remember Charles of Durazzo, the one that Joanna's sister Marie was forced to marry? Well, he has a younger brother named Louis, and Louis has a son, also named Charles. And Charles is theoretically the next in line for the throne. Further securing his claim is his marriage to Marguerite, the daughter of Marie and Charles of Durazzo. That's right, he married his first cousin. Charles had been raised at the court of his distant cousin, Louis of Hungary, the one who had invaded 30 years earlier, and had been brought up with the understanding that he was Joanna's heir. However, Joanna was also facing pressure from another direction, France. A distant cousin of hers, Louis, the Count of Anjou, uh, remember that I said the Angevins didn't hold on to their namesake county for very long? Eventually, it and the French crown come into the possession of the Valois family, and Louis is part of that dynasty. So, Louis of Anjou had actually been, unsuccessfully, trying for years to seize the county of Provence from Joanna by force. Once the schism happens, though, Louis changes his tune and sides with Joanna on the side of the Avignonese Pope in a blatant attempt to get her to appoint him as her heir. Charles, on the other hand, sides with Urban VI and Rome, at this point, Joanna has a choice. She can either switch sides and keep Charles as heir, or maintain her loyalty to Avignon and proclaim Louis of Anjou as her new heir. In the end, she chooses Avignon and adopts Louis, thus sealing her fate. 
Urban VI, the Roman Pope, in retaliation, proclaims her deposed from the throne of Naples in 1381. This in and of itself does nothing. Joanna doesn't even recognize his authority, but it gives Charles the excuse he needs. Gathering an invasion force from Hungary, the Hungarian Angevins are still invested in this conflict, Charles attacks and defeats Joanna and her husband Otto's forces, eventually capturing Joanna and throwing her in prison. And on the 12th of May, 1382, she's strangled to death in her prison, presumably on the orders of Charles, who now proclaims himself Charles III of Naples. Now, I've spent most of this podcast talking about Joanna in terms of her marriages, and this is largely because it's a good, gossipy, scandalous soap opera that makes for fun, if at times confusing, listening. It's also because Joanna's struggle for power was rather uncommon in a medieval nobility dominated by primogeniture and patriarchy, so much of the way she is depicted by contemporary sources tends to revolve around Joanna and her relationship with her husband's. Nevertheless, she was a queen in her own right, and, except for during her marriage with Louis of Toronto, exercised a level of authority and power that was closed off even from most noblewomen of her day. Her courts, when they weren't being driven by controversy and scandal, and sometimes even then, were places of learning and thriving culture. Joanna continued her grandfather's traditions of patronizing authors and the arts, uh, she was written about by Boccaccio and Petrarch, sometimes favorably, sometimes not. She maintained correspondence with some of the leading women of her day, including Bridget of Sweden and Catherine of Siena, though these relationships were themselves not always amicable. She was deeply involved in the politics of her day, especially papal politics. After her death, the Kingdom of Naples became a deeply contested and fought-over territory, with French, Spanish, and Hungarian ruling families all laying claim to its possession. Her legacy, like her story, is a complicated one, but I think it deserves to be more than just a footnote. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's podcast. You can also like us on our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Join us next week when we'll be talking about how a Mughal emperor decided to create a new religion in the 16th century. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week! <laughs>